Today's uh, Bible reading will be from the book of Ezekiel and the uh, book of Ephesians. So, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and by their deeds. Their ways before me were like uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they go out of his land. But I have concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel have profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus say the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which have been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declared the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were no good, and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abomination." It is not for your sake that I will act, declared the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Next, uh, we'll continue in chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of the Spirit, in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. 
And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus say the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause, cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinew upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath into you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesy as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there was sinew on them, and flesh has come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus said the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on the slain, and they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they said, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus say the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I shall place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declared the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them to one another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your, your people say to you, Will you not tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, Thus say the Lord God, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. Then the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, Thus say the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and they will 
and, and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountain of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. The next reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the son of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, who you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who have made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone here. Are those sitting in front here feeling like icicles at the moment? Or is it okay? 
Okay, good, all right. Okay, uh, good to see everyone here, as well as those in the overflow room. Sadly, we've gone back to a 75% uh, restriction, uh, as well as uh, your face having to be covered again by masks, which is really sad. I was, uh, was hoping to be able to see everyone face-to-face -face again at least for a few weeks, but we've got the one week, which is, uh, I guess, better than nothing. Um, so, uh, great big hello to also those uh, watching in from home. Um, it's good that we have a live stream that's still able to be uh, broadcast. Uh, for those of you who've been around the last few weeks, you may have realized that Steve hasn't been around for the last three weeks. He was away uh, for two weeks at different camps, uh, and then he's on a well-deserved break uh, this weekend. Uh, so him and a bunch of people are away, so uh, hello to you guys. So if you're watching in uh, from wherever you are. Um, if you are new to us today, uh, and I can't really see people's faces to be able to know or not, uh, welcome. Uh, I'd love to be able to meet you. Uh, if you've been coming along for a few weeks and I haven't met you yet, uh, please do introduce yourself to me. I'd love to be able to meet you as well. Uh, we are currently going through a pretty long sermon series in the book of Ezekiel, which we began quite a while ago now. I think it's about, about nine or ten sermons in. Uh, but we are in a really great part of the book, uh, which hopefully um, uh, you were able to be here last week as we looked into this uh, section on hope uh, in this big uh, prophecy of Ezekiel. So please keep your Bibles open to Ezekiel 36 and 37. We'll be working through uh, the passage that Jensen read out to us before. Um, and if it helps for you to follow along uh, with our outline, you will find that inside the bulletin, which you can always grab on the way in uh, to the hall, or you can download from our church website or our WhatsApp message group. So um, let's dive in. Um, but before we do that, uh, let's pray and ask that God would speak to us uh, through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you're a God who reveals yourself to us, that we, you are knowable, uh, that you desire to be known, and in knowing you, we may know life. And we thank you that uh, even in the 33 chapters of judgment that we've uh, been through, uh, it shows us that uh, the darkness of sin and judgment prepares us for the bright light, the glorious light of hope uh, in the second half of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, the hope that ultimately points us uh, to the, the, the fulfillment of the promises of hope in Jesus Christ in the gospel. So today we pray that you help us continue to bask in the, the bright light of hope as we look into this wonderful passage, um, a passage that speaks of a, a new life, a new hope, um, uh, both uh, individually uh, as we struggle with our own sin and our own concerns of not being able to change, uh, as well as in our struggles in terms of relating to each other as a church uh, and in bearing your name to the world. We pray that your word today will encourage us and comfort us, uh, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week, as we looked into this uh, second half of the book of Ezekiel, I kind of summarized the problems of Israel uh, that were outlined in chapters 1 to 33 that were a mark of the problems that they have always had. In fact, humanity has always had since the beginning. Uh, the three major problems that needed solving for Israel and for humanity is firstly the uh, personal or the individual problem. Uh, each and every one of them and of Israel, of humanity, has an unclean heart that turns away from God and God's ways. The second big problem for Israel and for humanity is the leadership problem. Uh, we have in, uh, in Israel and in the world self-serving, negligent and exploitive shepherds who don't lead people to God and who don't lead people to the good life, the God life. And the third problem is the surrounding uh, enemy nations right, of Israel. Uh, there are people around God's people, uh, the nations around, they hated God, they were against God, and so they were against God's people. 
And combined, we saw that these insurmountable problems brought destruction uh, to Israel. And it's not hard for us to see how this relevance is for all of humanity. That the individual personal sin problem that we all have, the problem of uh, having shepherds and leaders who don't lead us towards God and the good life, and the people who are against God and who therefore are against God's people also create for us an insurmountable problem. Now, we dealt with the leadership problem last week, and hopefully you were here for that. If not, uh, please go back and read the passage and, and listen to the sermon. And we ended last week by looking at how Jesus is the good shepherd, right? Our good shepherd. He's the leader that we most need, who will lead us to God and the good life that we crave for. Today, we'll hear God speak to us about the personal sin problem and how God will deal with sin and deal with sin's consequences. Now, when you think about sin, I think it's helpful for us to think of sin from a, from a three-dimensional perspective, like that sin has a triple threat. Firstly, I think we all know sin's profound personal impact. Right? It does great damage to us. Our attitudes and our actions, our inactions, the choices that we make, the words that we say, the things that we do, they, they fill us, don't they, with regret and with guilt. They bring uh, considerable harm to ourselves, right? the pain and torment that we cause to ourselves. And of course, because sin separates us from God, then we have the, this torment of being separated from God and, and drawing His anger and judgment upon us. The second dimension of sin, the second threat of sin, is the way that it destroys relationships with the people around us, right? Sin, it cuts people, it, it, it drives a wedge, it causes separation between people that we love, family, friends, even people within church, as well as just separation in the wider world, isn't it? That we can't get along with people at, at school and at work and in the wider world. The third dimension, the third threat of sin is that it does damage to God, right? Sin harms God also. It casts shade on God, especially the existence of sin among God's people, among the church. Uh, it damages God's reputation. It gives people the idea that God isn't good. Like if his representatives, if Christians are so hypocritical and so sinful, then what kind of God, what kind of Christ is it? Uh, they turn people, our sin turns people away from God. Now, as we dive into our passage today, we see that it begins with a reminder of how this kind of triple threat of sin exists, right, within Israel. Uh, firstly, they were self-defiled, we're told, right, unclean in their wicked ways and in their deeds toward God and towards each other. We see this in verses 16 to 20, right? They become unclean, kind of spiritually vile and disgusting, right? They were vile against God but they were also wicked right, towards each other. And so we've heard through the sermon series of how they were really unjust and really uh, um, hurtful and really cruel towards each other. And as we heard, all of this led to them being cast out, right, separated and divided. Now, the Northern Kingdom, as we have heard before, um, uh, the, uh, the Israel used to be one united kingdom. Um, this is uh, from way back um, after the time of you know, Joshua and Judges. They became a nation. Uh, but then they had a big civil war, and ultimately in the 8th century, the northern kingdom called Israel was sort of exiled by the Syrian Empire, which was in power then. And as we've been listening to in Ezekiel, about 150 years later, uh, the, Judah, uh, the, the southern kingdom Judah were then exiled by the then superpower, the Babylonians, right? So we've got personal sin problem, separation from God, hurting each other, separating from each other, and they were cast out. And this brought about the, the shaming of God's reputation. So have a look at verse 20, right? 
As a result of this separation, this casting out, the reputation of the Lord was shamed. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people, the people of the nation said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. And they are mocking God because the people have been cast out from the promised land. Now, out of these three uh, aspects or these three threats of sin, which would you say is the worst? Right? If you had to decide which of these three kind of consequences of sin would you say is the worst? Now, being human that we are, and we are you know, very uh, self-important and very self-centered, we would say that the, the consequences of sin that have a personal impact, now they're the worst, aren't they? Right? It's the brokenness that I feel in my life. It's the, the spoiling of the good life. It's the damaging of the relationships that I treasure. It's the separation I have from God, that feeling distant from God. That's the, the big consequence of sin that I most you know, dislike. As for the third aspect, though, the, 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 the aspect of shaming God through our sinfulness, the trashing of God's reputation, well, we know it's not good to dishonor and shame God, but it's not something that really bothers us most of the time, does it? But clearly, it matters to God, right? His name being trashed matters to Him a lot. Now, before the Lord goes on to make some truly wonderful promises that we'll see, as we heard before, and later on in the passage, that will overcome and overturn the problem of sin, He makes it clear what His motivation is. What is the reason for why He will make these promises? Why He will show such amazing grace? Have a look at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. A few, a few sentences later, and the nations will know. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. You hear it very clearly, right? Not for your sake, Israel, but for my sake, for the sake of my holy name. Now, I wonder, how does this sit with you when you hear that, right? It is not for your sake, human, but for the sake of my holy name, the Lord God says. How do you, how do you feel about that? Now, for some of us, it doesn't sit well with us, uh, well with us at all because we have a high view of ourselves and a low view of God. Right? We have a high view of ourselves, and we will think to ourselves, of course God would do things for my sake. Why wouldn't He? Right? He made me. Right? I am a valued person. I, am, I have dignity. I have worth. Of course God should do things for my sake. But now consider who Israel was, right? And, and, and consider what all humanity, what we are all like. How has Israel treated God? How have all of humanity treated our creator, our provider, our savior, our true king. If it were to be based on Israel's value, on Israel's deservedness, of humanity's deservedness, well, God would never act, would he? Right? We've treated God with total disdain, uh, with, with atrocious uh, unfaithfulness, uh, with abominable godlessness, as we've seen in the, in the many chapters before and in, and in human history. The profaning of God, all of us have done that. Right? If God would have to do things for our sake, well, He wouldn't act at all, would He? Why would He? 
But if he does it for his own sake, and, and his holy name deserves to be, to be known, well, that gives us hope. What gives us hope <clears throat> is that God will act to restore his holy name, what belongs rightfully to him. And as he does that, as he acts for his own holy name, we actually get amazing gift and blessing that we absolutely don't deserve. As the Lord restores his name and his reputation and the glory that belongs to him, we are, uh, we are um, beneficiaries of it in an amazing way. Now, I think about this idea of restoring someone's name. You know, these days, identity theft is rife, isn't it? Anyone kind of suffer identity theft? So weird that I was writing this sermon this week uh, and thinking about this whole idea of, you know, your reputation. And then I think on Monday or on Tuesday, I got an SMS. Sorry, no, I got a phone call from myself. Anyone ever get that? My number came up, right? 04335 I'm like, that's weird. I'm holding on to my, my phone with my number and then my number's coming up on the screen. So I was so tempted to pick it up and like start abusing the person, but I decided not to. And I Googled, right? And I realized that there's a such thing called a phone number spoofing, where they pretend to be your number, and then they get your details because they say your account's been hacked, and then they basically clear you out, right? Or maybe some of you have experienced having your email stolen or your Facebook hacked. And then once they do that, then they send a message to all your friends. I've been kidnapped by a Nigerian warlord, right? Send me $1,000, right, to be released or something. Anyone had their Facebook hacked before? Uh, so you keep yourself safe there, right? Or else, maybe you've experienced that someone has, has claimed that you have said or that you have done something when in fact you have not. You feel pretty kind of insulted, isn't it? At times like this, we're desperate to have our name cleared, to have our name back. Um, our name and our identity, the things that we do and the things that we say, we treasure it more than we realize. When, when those things are misrepresented, we are misrepresented. And we desperately want for our reputation, the truth of who we are, to be restored. Now, when you think about it, if we mere humans have this desire to be truly known and not misrepresented, then what more? The Lord God of heaven and earth, right? The Lord God deserves to be known as holy. And that holy word is the word of uniqueness, of being utterly set apart Right, completely different from everybody else. The Lord God uh, deserves to be known and honored as the, the creator of all things, the heavens and the earth and everything in it, as the true king who rules everything, who is perfectly righteous and perfectly good, right? the giver and sustainer of life and the savior of life. Right? All the, 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 the correct and right and glorious things about the Lord God, he deserves to be known for who he is. Because the Lord is uh, holy, he deserves to be known to be holy. But not only that, because the Lord vindicates his name, as I said before, he makes then the provision to, to overturn, to reverse all of the, 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 the reasons why his name has been dishonored. Right? He reverses the sin problem of Israel, their personal sin that led to their, 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 their community wickedness, that led to their scattering, that led to the dishonor of God's name. God's going to reverse all that. Right, because he wants to restore his holy name. And this is what the world most needs. It's what Israel most needs. They need to come to know the Lord God again. This is what the nations most need. Rather than mocking God and, 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 and discarding God and disregarding God, they needed to know the Lord God of heaven and earth. That's what the world most needs, to know God as he truly is. Because that's the only way 
for our broken, sinful world to be renewed and to be restored and to be reconciled back to each other and to God. And so, after we hear the motivation, we move on to the next part of the passage where it's dominated right, by the I wills, just like we saw last week. It's dominated by the section of the Lord just making these amazing promises that's completely one-sided. I will, I will, I will. How God will vindicate His holy name is to reverse, right? And so He begins in verse 24. I will go to chapter 36, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. Right? So the reason that the, pe- the people being cast out of the land was the reason that the Lord's name was changed. Right? Remember back in verse 20? It's because the, the, the nation had been scattered that the nations mocked God. Right? Ha ha, your people, they must be rubbish, you must be rubbish because they are out of the promised land. But the reason that they were scattered in the first place was because of their uncleanness, the profaning of the Lord God through their idolatry and their godless living. And so God reverses that too. Have a look at verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Now you stop and slow down, and you think about these three verses. They are truly amazing, phenomenal promises. The Lord God will cleanse But how can you clean something that is so dirty, that is so stained as Israel's heart was? Sometimes, you know, we have stains on our clothes. The only way to get rid of it is basically to throw away that piece of clothing and buy the same one back. Some stains are just indelible. They cannot be washed clean. And that's exactly what's needed to be done for Israel's heart. They needed a brand new heart, a brand new spirit. The previous one had become stone, too hard, too cold, too dead. So they needed a heart transplant. But who would be the one who would be the donor? It's the Lord God himself, of course. For who else has a clean clean heart to give but God? And so God says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put in you a new spirit. Now, what new spirit will he give no less than the Spirit of the Lord God Himself. Think about this transformation, right? From a dead heart, hardened towards God, and filled with uncleanness and atrocities and abominations, to a living heart filled with the very Spirit of God Himself. This is an amazing transformation, and in a way, an utterly unexpected surprise. God sets out to vindicate His holy name. What does He do? He gives a transformation to the unclean, wicked people. Now, what will be the impact of this? What will be the result of this new heart and this spirit dwelling in them? Well, if you glance over verses 27 to 30, we'll see the restoration that happens. Now, with the Spirit of God that's living within them, obedience to God, to God from the heart is now made possible. And so then it means that living in the land and remaining in the land and enjoying the blessings of the land is now made possible. It means that staying safe in the land, free from famine, free from the, 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 the surrounding nations invading them is now possible. Why? Because invasion and famine and separation and scattering was all a result of sin. 
And so if not, they've got clean hearts that can obey God from the heart. Well, it means that the godly life, the good life in the land with God is now not just possible, but it is secured and guaranteed. Secured and guaranteed. Why? Because their hearts have been cleansed and replaced with one filled with the very Spirit of God. Because they have been delivered from the old way of life that always led to sin and judgment. They've been delivered to a new way of life. Let's make no mistake about this, right? This is one epic transformation. Possibly the greatest personal transformation one can ever conceive of. Now, the gravity and the ginormity of what is going on here is actually shown to, to, to Ezekiel in the vision of chapter 37, right? It's the, probably the most famous and well-known bit of Ezekiel. I remember back to the first week of the sermon series, I asked people to put their hand up, who has read Ezekiel? And I think it was like maybe one or two people. Well, I, I'm pretty sure that everyone has read or at least have heard the story of Ezekiel chapter 37, especially if you've been through Sunday school, right? The, the Sunday school lessons, they go to town on this, uh, on this vision. It's really cute, right? But actually, it doesn't start off cute, does it? It's the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And it shows us that nothing short of resurrection is needed for God's promises to be realized. Nothing short of a recreation. Now, the opening scene of the vision uh, is pretty grim, right? The Lord, once again, transports Ezekiel and plonks him right in the middle of a valley very full of bones, extremely dry bones, right? It's a picture of the long dead, dead long enough for vultures to have come to rip off all the flesh from the skin, right? Long enough for the bones to have dried out completely. I remember my first year, my first week as a physio student in UQ, we were brought to the morgue. It's not called the morgue. It's called the, whatever it's called. I call it the morgue because it's where all the dead bodies are. Uh, and we got to pull out, right, the carcasses, not carcasses, that's not bad, that's human, human remains, right, from these uh, formaldehyde-filled bins. And at first, you know, they're quite moist, but then you meant to put them back in as soon as you finish, you know, poking and, prod, poking and prodding and trying to figure out what things are, because they dry out when you're on the bench, right? You can literally see it start drying out. But the scene here is of bone dry, bones, like it's littered everywhere. It's not hard to figure out what these bones represent. It's a picture of how dead Israel was, right? They've been dead a long time. Humanity, up to this point, has been dead a long time. The Lord says to Ezekiel, he asks Ezekiel, can such bones live? The Lord asks Ezekiel, can such bones live? And Ezekiel very wisely says, oh Lord God, only you know. Right? Only you know. Only you know, only you can do something about this. And the Lord does do something about this. The Lord commands Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. And as he does, and this is where, you know, the, the kids' videos of YouTube really bring it to town, they rattle, right, along the ground, and they, they join together bone to bone. And then new sinews of muscles start to form, right? Tendons join muscles to bone, and ligaments join bone to bone. And then suddenly we see flesh, right, being, being populating the surface of the body once again. A new covering, a, a reformation, a renewal, a re created body appears before Ezekiel. Not just one body, but this valley full of bones now rises up as a new army of God's people. But just like in the original creation of man in Genesis 1 and 2, the final and the most important step is 
the breath of life. And so Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy to the breath, right? The Lord God, 9b, 37, 9b, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds of breath and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. A few verses later, in the middle of verse 12, starting there, we are told the plain meaning of what all this, uh, this vision means. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, this, this vision, it promises a future physical and spiritual resurrection, doesn't it? A future physical and spiritual resurrection. The, bone, the, the bodies will come out from the grave, out from the grave, out from the grave. He repeats it so many times. And it is the spiritual resurrection that is the key because it is spiritual death that leads to physical death and eternal death and separation from God. It has been the case since Genesis 3, is it? Spiritual death, the turning away from God that leads to physical death and then eternal death. But one day, the Lord God promises to reverse death. He will open the graves, He will raise the dead, and He will put His Spirit in them to give them spiritual life, resurrection made alive again physically and spiritually so that eternally we will be with the Lord. So, let's step back. How is the Lord able to deliver Israel and humanity, you and I, from our uncleanness? How can stony-hearted spiritual dead people come alive how can God secure for us the good life, the God life, where He dwells with us and we are with Him again? Well, the Lord's answer is, I will do it. Right? The Lord says, I will do it. I will make you a new creation. I will raise the dead and I will place my own spirit into the new heart that I myself will provide so that once again and forevermore, you will be my people. Now, not only did Israel receive a certain and wonderful hope of personal and individual renewal and restoration through the resurrection, they were also given a hope of reconciliation as a united people. And this is the last half of chapter 37 now, right? Chapter 37, verses 15 to 28. So we've seen sin's power right, to destroy uh, individuals, and we've seen sin's power to destroy relationships. And this too will be reversed, will be done away for good as well in the promise of God. In verses 15 to 28, another visual prophecy is given to Ezekiel, this time with some visual aids, right, with two sticks. Uh, and on the two sticks, uh, you'll see two names. Uh, and one represents the southern kingdom, Judah, and the other represents the northern kingdom, Israel. Uh, so Judah obviously represents the southern kingdom, and Ephraim, who is the son of Joseph, uh, represents the northern kingdom. Remember, there were once a united kingdom that was torn apart by 
faithlessness and sinfulness towards God and towards each other, civil war, and then having been judged right, over two periods of time through exile, and they were far from home, far from each other, far from God, far from the land. But once again, this tragedy, into this tragedy, the Lord steps in. Right? The Lord steps in and the Lord says, I will reconcile them back together, regather them back as one nation from all of the nations that be scattered into, reform them into one nation, one kingdom, ruled under one king. And as we heard last week, we know who this king is. It's, it's the, the, the human shepherd that God puts over his people, David. The king is David. The ruler that the Lord himself sets over his people, the shepherd, the ruler, the king, who will lead people into the good life, back into a relationship with God. Under this king, there will be a new covenant or a covenant restored, right, where there will be everlasting peace. Remember that word from last week? Shalom, that complete and everlasting goodness that can never be taken away. And finally then, we see that since smearing, the third dimension, the third threat, the third consequence of sin, the smearing of God's name and reputation is also then done away with. When the Lord delivers his people from their uncleanness and returns them to the Lord, God's name is restored. And we see this kind of scattered through the two chapters, actually. In 36, 36, um, Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, right? When the people regather, the nations will know what the Lord is really like. Then in chapter 37, verse 14, after he raised the dead and gives him his spirit. Verse 14, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. When the Lord has achieved making his people holy again, one united people under his one king again, this is what will happen, right? Verse 28, the last verse of chapter 37. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary, my dwelling is in their midst forevermore. And so you see, the Lord God acts first and foremost to clear his holy name, to restore his holy name for the world to know, for the world to see. And this is our greatest hope. This is our greatest gift and blessing. Why? Because as God clears his name by making unclean and dead people like us, like Israel, holy and whole again, his vindication is our salvation, right? His vindication is our salvation, which is why we, we yeah, yeah, go God, right? You do what you need to do to, to glorify yourself for the world to know who you really are because in His vindication is our salvation. It's humanity's hope. Now, all of God's promises in our passage today has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Now, as I've been going through these two chapters, I'm pretty sure that it has rung a lot of bells for you about things that you've heard before about from the New Testament, right? If, you, if, if you've ever kind of, um, uh, uh, if you've read the New Testament, if you know the gospel, if you're a Christian, you would, it would, this, this passage is, uh, sounds so familiar. And in a way, I could go to 100 passages in the New Testament to show you how Jesus Christ and the gospel fulfills all that's been said in Ezekiel 36 and 37. Um, but I want to just go through a few highlights just for us to be able to start 
um, enjoying what we have in, uh, in Christ. Right? If you are a Christian here today, if you put your trust in Jesus, uh, I want you to know what you have, right? what you have in Christ. We're told in Ephesians 2, the passage that Jensen read out to us, which you can read again on your own, that we were once all dead in our trespasses and sins. But God has made us alive together with Christ. In Christ, we have died with Him, and also in Christ, we have been raised to life with Him. Right? That's from Ephesians 2. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus promises that we will be born again. Remember the, the, that, that famous conversation in John 3 with Nicodemus? Right, we are born again through Jesus. We, we are sealed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of life now lives in us. And what does the Spirit do? As you read through the New Testament, the Spirit is there dwelling in us to illuminate us to the Word and the will of God. And it's there to empower us to be able to live out that will and Word of God. And then we are told that Christ is our peace. Right? He's our peace. In Him, all believers are united as one body, the church. And the dividing wall of facility in Ephesians 2 is between Jews and Gentiles, the great divide of all uh, humanity, but between every single person, whatever sin-caused, sin-driven hostility that's there, Jesus is there to bring peace to our human relationships, reconciled to each other, and of course, best of all, reconciled to God. That's what Jesus died for, right? To, to take away that hostility. And as He gives us His Spirit individually and as a church, what is He doing? He is reforming, rebuilding a united community. The one church, the one body of Christ that bears His likeness, shaped by love and, and grace and truth, bearing all of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So we have a personal transformation, we have a community transformation, and finally we have the restoration of God's reputation. For why does the Lord Jesus come? Why does God send Jesus to fulfill His promises? If you go back to Ephesians 1, the repetition, the reason given for why we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ is for the praise of His glory, for the praise of His glorious grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ that fulfills all of the promises of God in Ezekiel 36 and 37 and throughout the Old, Old Testament is there to show us God, what God is really like, that He may be known, trusted, loved, and worshipped. Now, this is our second week, isn't it? Looking into uh, Ezekiel's section on hope. Uh, and I, I, I hope that you really heard a great message, a wonderful message of hope today. The promise of renewal and restoration through resurrection, the promise of reconciliation with each other and with God that's been fulfilled in Christ gives us real hope. And I want to spell out, you know, three kind of practical applications, implications of this real hope that we have in Jesus, right, following along the three dimensions of sin that has been overturned, okay? So let's start with that personal. Uh, we can have real hope, firstly, that a new life is possible, right? That a new life is possible. No matter what you have done in life, no matter how much sin or what kind of sin you've committed, 
no matter how guilty you feel, how far away from God, how undeserved you are, no matter how spiritually dead you feel right now, the blood of Jesus washes you clean. In Jesus Christ, you can come to Him for life. There is no amount of sin or deadness that Jesus' life cannot overcome. Right? In Him is resurrection and life. His resurrection can raise even the deadest of the dead. There's hope. You may not be a believer here today, and you may feel like maybe you don't deserve it. Maybe you can't come to God anymore. Maybe you feel too dead, too dirty. Well, the real hope you can have is that, no, you can come to God through Jesus. You can be cleansed and given a new life. Now, for us as Christians as well, I think we struggle sometimes with thinking that we can live a new life. In our struggle to live for God, to live with obedience, we can forget, isn't it, what we've been given in Jesus. We can forget that the Holy Spirit of God now dwells in us. He continues to be at work, breathing life into us. Now, it might not feel that way, and feelings are deceptively deceptive, I suppose. And in a week where I'm preaching about the power of the Spirit to transform lives, I certainly haven't felt right, the empowering of the Spirit in an experiential way. But I was so glad to be writing this sermon and reading through these passages and, and thinking about these things because as much as I don't feel the Spirit at work, I am convinced by the Word of God that He is at work in my life because I trust in the promises of God that has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Right, whether we feel it or not, whenever we open the Word of God, whenever we go to a Bible study, whenever we go to a sermon, the Word of God is being received through the Holy Spirit, is being understood, is being, uh, you, you are getting spiritual insight. You may not realize this, but if you did not have the Spirit, I guarantee you that you would not be able to hear and understand and live it out. Now, it's hard to do a, a blind test, right? I'm going to have the spirit now and then no spirit now and see the difference. It's really hard to do that. But I'm, I'm saying to you, God's word is saying, the fact that you have the spirit means that he's at work helping you to know God's word and helping you to be able to live it out. Whether you feel it or not, you are being changed and transformed. Yes, yeah, sometimes it feels painfully slow. Sometimes it feels like two steps back uh, forward and then 1.9 steps back or maybe 10 steps back sometimes. But if you've got the Spirit, if you trust in Jesus, He's at work. He, he's transforming you and aiding you and guiding you and helping you and strengthening you, empowering you more than you realize. This is what we need to know. Because so often in our despair at not being able to change, we go to two extremes. We either put it upon ourselves to try harder, more willpower, or we give up altogether, don't we? Now, perhaps we rely on, on putting on more rules and more strategies upon ourselves, or we find accountability partners or more books to read or something. These aren't bad things in themselves, but if we don't recognize the work of the Spirit in us, we don't go to Him to help us change, then we are shortchanging ourselves. Now, how does the Holy Spirit work? Right? It's very important to think about this, right? How does the Holy Spirit work? Well, firstly, the Holy Spirit works by us speaking to the Spirit, right? by praying. Now, it sounds like the Sunday school answer, doesn't it? But it's true, because the Holy Spirit of God is a person, just like the Father and the Son is a person. We have a, a real living person, the person of God living in us. 
And so we speak to the Spirit. We reveal ourselves to the Spirit. We confess our sins and our struggles. We bear our soul. We, we have a conversation, have a discussion. Right? We, we, we might even go on our knees and cry sometimes in our despair. And sometimes when we don't have the words, Romans 8 promises us that the Spirit will pray to God on our behalf. He intercedes for us. So pray. If you want the Spirit to work in you, pray. Secondly, the Spirit works through the Word of God. Right? Once again, it's like this typical Sunday school answer, pray in the Word of God. But the Spirit of God and the Word of God in the Bible, when you read it together, whenever the Old Testament people were filled with the Spirit, they prophesied. Right? The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It is those who have the Spirit that hears the Word of God and the Gospel, this is 1 Corinthians 2, as not merely man's Word with natural understanding, but as God's Word with spiritual understanding. Is the word is the spirit that takes the word and makes it come alive and empowers us to live it out. And so if we want to rely on the spirit, we want the spirit to be at work, then we need to read the word and let it come alive in us by the spirit. And thirdly, of course, we need to work with the spirit. We have to will ourselves, yes, to cooperate. For Paul gives us command to not uh, quench the spirit and not to grieve the spirit. He's a living God. Right, trying to get us and helping us, empowering us to change. So let's not quench him or grieve him. Now, as a pastor, one of my favorite things, as one of the favorite parts of my job, it's kind of a job, I suppose, right, is that I get to see transformation in so many people's lives. I get to hear stories, but I get to see it for myself. I get to see Christ at work, spirit-filled, people living new, transformed lives, right? The more I'm here, the more I get to know people over a longer period of time, the better it is. Yes, it's not always perfect and it's ups and downs, but over time, it is just such a joy, right, to see people spirit-filled, transformed. And I hope that you can see this in yourself and in the lives of the people around you. And I hope it brings you great encouragement as we see as we hear the stories of change that's brought about by the power of God's Spirit dwelling in resurrected, Christ-centered people. May it help you to hope and strive that change will keep happening. The second thing is that we can have real hope of a united community, right? A Spirit-transformed community. Once again, this is something uh, that many of us experienced here at SLE Church. Right, God has been powerfully at work in our community in shaping us and changing us over the years. If you've been around long enough, you would maybe remember what it used to be like in the, the, uh, the darker, older days, right? But as the gospel, as the word of God was taught through, through, through the pulpit and through Bible study groups and through one-on-ones, we see the word of God, the spirit of God transforming our community. I've seen our community grow as worshippers of God, as people more committed to the kingdom of God and, and to be in partnership in the work of the gospel. I've seen people in conflict actually reconcile with each other, hurt people who forgive, who, who, who show a grace that is costly. I've seen genuine acts of love and sacrificial service in many different ways. It's been a real blessing. Now, yes, qualifications, we are by no means perfect, but by, we, are, we are by God's means being made perfect aren't we? We are by no means perfect, but by God's means we are being made perfect. You know, it's a good thing, and it's actually a very necessary thing that we stop to recognize this and to give thanks and praise to God for this. 
right? His grace must never be overlooked and unseen and unnoticed. He is powerfully at work in us, which leads us to our final point. As He powerfully works in us by His Spirit through Christ, individually and as a community, there is real hope that we can actually glorify God's name as His people, that we can actually uphold His reputation. We might bring the world to see the, the, the goodness and the glory of God. Now, we all know that hypocritical Christians and hypocritical churches turns people off. It brings great shame to the name of Jesus. But a righteous and a loving and a sanctified community is the deeply attractive community. We show the world that there's a different way to live. There is a different God to serve that's actually good for us. <clears throat> righteous, loving, sanctified believers who bear God's name to the world. We can be a blessing to our families and to our communities who don't know God. You see, through Christ and His Spirit, we can be witnesses to God's glory and power and love and grace and kindness and goodness and wisdom. We can show the world just how holy and special God is and so that they might come to know and trust in Jesus themselves, come to have the good life, the God life, themselves. Now we have real hope because God acts to vindicate His holy name, which He has done so by dealing with our sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The real hope that we have is the real hope that the world needs. May God's word today give us the courage and the comfort to be able to keep living for Jesus for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for these beautiful words, these wonderful and amazing words of promise. They're motivated not, for, not by our sake, because we are utterly undeserving, but motivated by your own sake, for your own holy name to be vindicated. You have so amazingly turned around all of the destruction and the consequences of sin <clears throat> that Israel, that humanity, that we have uh, suffered under. That in your great promises, uh, you've promised to cleanse our hearts, give us a brand new heart, and not only that, to fill us with your own very spirit, the spirit of life that will never be taken away from us. We thank you that we have the hope through your promise that you'll restore us as a community of people who are restored to, to living with you forever in your presence. That we have the real hope of living in honor and glory and upholding your reputation in this world. For the real hope that we have uh, is the real hope that the world needs. So we pray, Father, that your word today will comfort us, even as we continue to struggle to think about how we can change and be transformed. Uh, that you comfort us and you uh, give us courage to keep striving to live as a, a beautiful community united in the love of Christ. That you give us the courage to keep proclaiming Christ to the world, uh, giving you honor in the way that we live, that more might come to know and trust in the Lord Jesus. All this we pray in his name.